you to the Balfour Project for inviting me. Uh, I'm talking really about the book and the information in the book that was published a couple of years ago. And here is a, an English version of the book, and here's the Arabic version published by the Centre for Arab Unity Studies in Beirut. And I'll, I'll try to talk for no more than about 35 or 40 minutes. Uh, I've got a few slides to back up some of the arguments in the book, but I'd just like to set up and frame the talk, if I may, um, with just some ideas about the British Empire. And I was thinking in another talk that I gave, and this made me uh, draw up a new slide, that from the independence of America in 1783 up until Indian independence in 1947, um, I can't think of a single successful insurgency within the British Empire. And some of you might think of Ireland in 1922, but of course, the Irish lost the north of the country to Protestant settlers. It's a lesson there for what happened later in Palestine. Um, and also Irish officials carried on with fealty, with loyalty to the British crown. The British kept treaty ports in Ireland and Ireland was within the dominions um, and part of the British Empire until the late 1940s. So th the idea here is about power and about the violence that underpins, that underpinned the British Empire. And I've got a definition here from the shorter Oxford English Dictionary on violence, because one of the points in the book is that the British employ uh, considerable excessive violence, I mean, atrocities, brutality, torture, shootings, assassinations, uh, during the repression of the Arab revolt. But the point in the book is that the extreme violence is, is, is less important and is less profound than the violence that underpinned the British Empire and which was embedded fundamentally in legal and administrative structures. So here with the quotation, restriction or alteration of natural action, behavior or inclination, undue or enforced constraint, abuse of power to persecute or oppress, the first part of my talk deals with the last part of my book, military power and the effects of military power. But the fundamental thesis is that the British set up a, a, a lawfare, if you like, rather than warfare. And this is used, this colonial architecture, which is largely legal in form to repress the Palestinians. And it's done in a fundamentally non-lethal way, although casualties are high in the Arab revolt, relatively speaking, they're fairly low. And also the, the, the pacification is directed more at property than people. So the British empire is very powerful because of the way it moderates violence. And what can come out from the book is excessive violence. But the argument of the book is really how the British manage violence. It might be excessive, it might not. But the British turn the violence on or off as is required. And they do this very effectively in Palestine. And the British military uh, is very effective in doing what the British government in London requires, which is defeating the Palestinian insurrection before the Second World War to release the British army to fight in Europe. Uh, so the arguments of the book are really about lawfare, about law and administration. These are the bedrock of Britain's pacification. Lawfare, if you like, rather than warfare. Uh, it's not a phrase that I came up with. It comes out of David Edgerton's book on uh, the British warfare state, obviously a play on welfare state. I talk a little bit at the end of this talk about the variable of resistance because the British seek loyalist collaborator forces within both the Jewish and Palestinian communities. But the resistance is the variable against a colonial power that, roughly speaking, 
executes pacification in the same way across the empire. Now, the pacification changes from the late 19th century, the high renaissance of um, eliminationist, racist small wars, to the managed brutality of imperial policing in Palestine in the 1930s. So the British gradually moderate what they do, uh, the League of Nations changes what the British do, Amritsa changes the way the British see things, uh, German atrocities in Belgium make the British consider what they do. But the variable is fundamentally the resistance against a very successful colonial power, which executes the pacification across the empire in similar ways. This runs on after the Second World War and becomes quite controversial in terms of recent literature from Caroline Elkins and from David Anderson, uh, both very good books, uh, quite harrowing reads uh, about what the British do in Kenya in the 1950s to repress Mau Mau and the rebellion there. Although interestingly, much of the worst um, excesses of the atrocities are committed by loyalists and by police reserve units. And there's also been uh, movements uh, within Malaya concerning the emergency there in the 1950s. Here you have a Royal Marine with severed heads, and here you have uh, Malays looking for a truth and reconciliation in a court case in London. And if you want the latest word on the subject, all about the British Empire and the violence, here you have it, Caroline Elkin's recent book, just uh, published last year, History of the British Empire, Legacy of Violence. And the work I did has appeared in Tom Bateman's work on uh, more recently for the BBC in terms of apologies being sought for British war crimes in Palestine, which might interest some of you listening in today. And uh, Tom Bateman picked up on some of the uh, more violent, more uh, abusive elements of British military action in Palestine in the 1930s. In particular, he picked up on a, an attack that the British military launched in late 1938 on the Palestinian village of Al-Bassa. It's not there anymore. It's now in Moshav, up near um, the, Palestinian, uh, the Lebanese border, and at Al-Bassa, the British both um, shot people, tortured people, but also blew them up under a bus, so it was a contrived explosion uh, which killed 20 to 30 villagers, so they weren't uh, rebels, they weren't fighters in any way, and this was a punitive raid launched against a village that was near an incident where a mine blew up a British military lorry, killing four soldiers. And this is the military part, the, in a way, the easy part of the book, military action, military force, British soldiers, guns, shooting people, repressing people, brutality. Here you have General Dill, one of the three uh, British senior generals who in succession rule the, um, the British army and rule, Pal actually don't rule Palestine, the high commissioner is still there, but they rule the British military forces through the period of the Arab revolt from April, 1936 up until the um, summer of 1939. And here he has a march past outside the YMC build, YMCA building in West Jerusalem. Get a watch out here. Uh, here's another image going by the old city walls near the uh, Jaffa Gate. And here you have the Scots Guards again, lots of British regiments go through Palestine. It's a, a very con considerable British military deployment in fact, one of the largest military deployments in the interwar period outside of India. And here you have a sense of the military power that was surged, to use the sort of phrase from Afghanistan, a wave or a surge of troops 
uh, comes in to repress the rebellion. The military force is very important, but it's underpinned by what I want to talk about for the next 20 minutes or so, which is the legal administrative structures of repression, many of which I'm not an expert on Israel today, but many of them carry over into the uh, new Israeli government of 1948 and then up until the current situation. I mean, ideas of collective punishment, for instance, and house demolition which uh, go back to the 1931 British Order in Council. Uh, the surges of troops are quite considerable, but if you stretch your minds beyond Palestine to Europe, the British have to deal firstly with the Abyssinia crisis with Italy in 1936, and then there's the Czechoslovakia crisis in late 1938, which isn't solved until September 38. And so the uh, politics in Europe, they affect what happens in Palestine is the British surge troops in in the summer of 36, once Abyssinia has been resolved and Haile uh, Selassie has been defeated. And then once the Munich settlements affected by Chamberlain in September 38, the British surge troops in October 38. And in both of those cases, they're holding troops back because of possible um, flashpoints elsewhere. Uh, when you talk about the security forces, this is a picture from the American Colony Hotel archive, a really good photo archive, books and books of photographs from actually all through the period um, from the mandate and before. And here you have an image of Royal Marines, so soldiers off of ships and they're in white. Uh, but you also have working alongside the British Army, of course, the RAF, but you have the Arab Legion from Jordan. You have CID, there's no special branch in Palestine, but the Criminal Investigation Department works and has a political department that works with the police. You also have auxiliary forces, I'll talk more about them, both from mostly from the Jewish community, but also some auxiliary forces from the Palestinians and secret service as well, MI5 and MI6. MI5 uh, runs operations in Palestine, it's within the empire. MI6 runs a, a very successful operation in Damascus through the British Consul General there, a man called Gilbert McCarrith, who works very hard to stop the smuggling of guns and the passage of uh, would-be rebels from Syria and from Iraq who are going into Palestine to fight the British. So uh, in a holistic way, the British deal with the Arab revolt against the British, and they use not just the army, but as I'm saying, all the different elements of the security forces. Uh, these um, men are on the streets of Haifa, which makes sense because that's the only place that could um, accept large British ships. So I wanted to go back a little bit now and do a sort of politics 101, if you like, back at university. Uh, legislature, judiciary and executive, because the issue in Palestine is there's no legislature. The only legislative in uh, influence that the Palestinians or the Jews can have is through the parliament in London or informally through the High Commissioner. Because what you have here is prerogative power. There is no uh, restriction or no influence on the High Commissioner from the local community through the normal balance of power, the checks and balances that you would have in a Western political system. The one exception is the judiciary, but in the June of 1936, as I'll show you in a moment, the British destroy a large part of Jaffa. The judiciary objects to that, and after that, the British colonial administration neuters the judiciary in Palestine, and with no legislature, a neutered judiciary, 
And in an executive, which is wholly run by the British, there's very little uh, interference or restriction that the local communities can make to this, the law. Now, the laws in Palestine come about through orders in council. Uh, these are quite unusual in Britain. They're not unknown. Uh, we've used them for the European Union in the 1970s and 80s, but they're always subject to the scrutiny of Parliament in London. But these are the foundation of the system of rule in Palestine. And the orders in council, which start in 1922, then snowball down into emergency regulations, all of which are issued and which have no scrutiny from any legislative body. Now, when you go through the legislation, and it appears in the Palestine Gazette, it's quite bewildering because you have all sorts of notices, curfew orders. Uh, they stem back to orders in council, but from the orders in council, there's a whole series of subsidiary legislation. I don't want to bore you with this, but it is important. Here are the key um, dates. Now, the 1922 order in council establishes the constitution of Palestine without a legislature. There are two muted, muted legislatures in 1923 and in 1935. Uh, neither comes to anything for various reasons that I haven't got time to go into, and both of them would still have given the British members in the Legislative Council a majority. Uh, the key order in council for repression is the 1931 order in council. In fact, the 1931 order in council empowers the 1945 emergency regulations that the British use against the Jewish insurgency from 45 to 48, which is then paradoxically picked up on, or ironically picked up on by the Israeli state in May 1948, and it then becomes Israeli law. So the Israeli law uh, used for its pacification, their pacification, stems back to the 1931 order in council. The British never affect martial law in Palestine. They get very close to it, uh, but they don't establish full martial law, but they get close to it with a Palestine martial law, which is not enacted, although strangely, it actually appears in the Palestine Gazette. And there's an order in council in 1937, and then there are the Second World War ones in 39, especially the Emergency Powers Defense Act. If you could be bothered to read them, they're pretty stringent. They give the government power to ride roughshod over most civil rights. Now, to be fair, these powers are also affected back in the metropolis in Britain in 1914 and in 1939. But these are the established basis of rule through the mandate period, and they are very powerfully used against the well, against the Palestinians in 1936 or the Jews in 1945. And the two regulations that you have here at the bottom, the 36 and 45, they're the actual rules that the soldiers and the civil administrators get. And this is, they flow from the orders in council that come automatically from the government through the colonial office, through the high commissioner and the emergency regulations, there's lists of them numbered one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And they give the security forces the power to institute curfews, to destroy houses, for instance, house demolition, which I know still 
it's a topical issue today, uh, and detention of people without trial, all of those are laid out in the emergency regulations. And the British adjust the regulations with all sorts of amendments. If you be bothered to go through the Palestine Gazette, there are the amendments to the curfew, amendments to detention, amendments to censorship, amendments to carrying a gun, amendments to carrying a dagger, amendments to illegal processions, amendments to making loud music, which could be seen to be a protest. And the amendments copper bottom and fill any holes that the British Mandate Authority thinks have not been plugged by the original regulations. So they're very, very flexible. And as soon as the British see a problem in 1937, they amend a particular regulation. So you have to start from the ordering council to the regulation and then all the amendments, which in one level is a bit dull, but it is very, very important. And then you have ordinances as well, which sit alongside the emergency regulations. And as I said at the bottom, and as I said before, very versatile. The Collective Punishments Ordinance of 1936 establishes what it says, although the British collective punishment is more indiscriminate. So if there's an incident here, the British will institute collective punishment close by. They don't target a particular uh, as a rule, a particular family, they'll target a particular area. The police ordinance of 1926, I understand, is still the basis for the Israeli police today. That's what an Israeli police officer told me. They have a press ordinance, which uh, is very strong in censorship, uh, controlling telephones, controlling the publications of uh, newspapers, controlling the import of newspapers, which are critical of the British, and they also control the uh, immigration of or the coming into the country of any uh, journalists from abroad and the criminal code ordinance of 1936 uh, brings together a lot of pre-existing Ottoman laws uh, which stem back to Napoleonic code uh, some English uh, case law it brings it all together in a common criminal code and the result is uh, hangings here and this is uh, an Arabic uh, cartoon which was handed out in the marketplaces and you can see the Arabic um, translation below from the Central Zionist archives and the British hang legally about 112 I can never work out 110 or 112 including two Jews but otherwise uh, all Palestinian uh, suspects who were hanged um, during the rebellion and they also, the emergency regulations, give British soldiers the right to shoot any running suspects. Uh, the expression is wakif, uh, which the soldiers would then often mangle to corned beef or later in Aden, I'm, I'm heard they, shall, they shouted fuck off three times. Um, I'm working on Borneo at the moment in the 1960s, and it's interesting the continuity of what goes on, because they, the British soldiers in are taught in Malay to say halt exactly the same three times, and if the person does not halt, then the regulations give you the right to shoot them. So as long as you say halt, halt, halt three times, then you're within your rights to shoot them as part of the security forces. And it's a very visible sign of collective punishment of the whole area. And this is the old city of Jaffa, um, which I visited a while ago, and it sort of seemed to be filling up with gentrification, what's left of it in this the sort of Caspar area. But this is the demolition in June 1936, following trouble, as the British saw it in the old city of Jaffa. So the British wanted to ingress and also punish the area of Jaffa. And so 
they did this. I don't know if my cursor can show this to you. It looks like an anchor. In fact, it's called, I think, is it Ogen in Hebrew for anchor? Uh, the British often describe it as like a bow, and it gives the British military powers the ability to get into the old city of Jaffa. But this demolition was perfectly legal within the emergency regulations established in April 36. And it's interesting that when the Arab revolt starts in April 1936, the same evening, the British enact the emergency regulations. So they're primed for any trouble. The regulations are there and they are able to use them very quickly for pacification. And this is what pacification looks like on the ground. Here are three soldiers blasting trumpets to signal that there is going to be another explosion. And the destruction in Jaffa is the most visible and the most um, sort of powerful image of collective punishment and house demolition. But if you look pro rata at the smaller villages where the British destroy buildings, the, the demolition pro rata is worse in some of the small villages because they destroy, say, half or three quarters of a small place. And so fewer houses overall are destroyed, but more of the conurbation is destroyed. Uh, the British remove people, not always, but they remove people from the building. Uh, the Royal Engineers come in and blow up the buildings. Uh, sometimes the British make the Palestinians destroy the building themselves, brick by brick. It depends on the regiment, depends on what's going on. But my point to you is it's all perfectly legal, as is this uh, searching. Now, searching can just be searching, but the British would also label some searches punitive raids. And these were legal, not simply under the emergency regulations, but also under the law that guided soldiers. Now, this was the King's regulations, but more importantly, the Manual of Military Law, which had been updated in, I think, 1931, and the Manual of Military Law gave soldiers the, uh, the legal right to use any power necessary to repress a rebellion, especially in the colonies. The law was different back in the metropolis, back in Britain, but pretty much any level of force was allowable in the peripheral areas across the empire. Now, this is a good uh, photo of what went on across a lot of Palestine, which is just smashing things up. Uh, the British would break cabinets. The soldiers didn't always like doing it, but the officers, when they got the men going, there was a kind of a, a red mist would descend and the destruction could be really quite immense. And of course, curfew orders. Uh, this is one that was on a display at the American Colony Hotel. It's not there anymore, but I scanned it in from the archive. And here you have it in English and Arabic and Hebrew. And the curfew orders were a very impressive way and a very extensive way that the British could control movement, mostly, but not exclusively at night. And during the day, the British would also institute curfews if necessary, sometimes for two or three days, then releasing it for an hour so people could go out and get food. Sometimes they would be nighttime ones that they would vary. Sometimes they would be daytime curfews. At other times, the British would issue curfew orders along certain vital arteries like roads or railways. So each side of the road or the railway, there'd be a curfew order. And if anyone was in that area at these times, they could be shot. 
Now, sometimes they were shot, sometimes they were arrested. It depended whether it was the police or the army, depended on the mood of the regiment, the local soldiers. The curfew order, along with the right to shoot someone after you shouted halt, halt, halt three times in Arabic, which of course British soldiers don't um, understand, so they just learned the phrase, they have to remember it. It's a powerful way of control. And that's my point really about the pacification. The pacification is about controlling people. They control petrol. They issue ID cards so you can't travel without ID cards. There's curfews, there's detention. Uh, they restrict all sorts of issues of permits. Uh, there's restrictions on food. All of these measures of control are as powerful or more powerful than soldiers going out with guns and attacking rebel bands or punishing villagers. Uh, the detention is impressive. Uh, there's, this is Akka jail. The main internment camp is north of Akka, but the British also detained people in the Negev desert, and they detained them at the south, well, at the time, is the very large British military base at Sarafan. They also detain them at police stations. They detain them in Tegut forts, some of which are now Israeli police stations. They also detain them in the countryside in work camps, which uh, they're, they're not really on the books. They're not concrete structures. They also detain uh, Palestinians uh, in army camps, and often they use them as free labor. They also banish people from one area to another so that they uh, actually rather like um, uh, Italian fascists used to do, they banish people to the southern part of Italy. They banish them to another part of Palestine. So there's a whole um, archipelago of detention across Palestine. I don't think it's a gulag, because it's not fundamental in the way the gulag was in the Soviet system, but certainly for the period of the revolt, there's an archipelago of an architecture, an archipelago of prisons that once the revolt ends, it's closed down. But detention is a very powerful tool, uh, and it's willy-nilly. I mean, the, the army, uh, you, know, you can see jokes in soldiers' papers about we're just detaining anybody, any able-bodied man or, or woman. There's a women's prison in Bethlehem. There's a section in the book on uh, the experience of women in the Arab revolt. Um, but the, the soldiers will, will say, if you, it, they'll often make comments that someone's got a bad squint or a, an ugly looking face, he's likely to get arrested. But at other times, the soldiers take the arrested people to the local colonial official, and the colonial official just detains them uh, just one after the other. And the detention period can be renewed. So you'll have people who'll be in jail. They don't come before a court. There's no habeas corpus. Uh, there's no trial. And they'll be in detention for two or more years. And also, uh, people who are detained are released. And then other elements of the security force will arrest them. So they'll be released from Akka jail or Sarafan. And then the police will arrest them and take them somewhere else. There are also secret detention camps. There's one uh, on the Allenby camp. It's, it's called Talavera, which is a battle in the Peninsula War. And it's a, a sub part of the Allenby barracks, which is in the southern part of Jerusalem. It's now a housing complex. And there they had a torture house. So it was a separate Sikh secret detention centre in a police area, but is in a military part, so police military part of the camp. It's rather like the Al-Biar um, torture centre in Algiers in the, um, the Algerian War of Independence. 
but without the automatic execution uh, post-torture, which seemed to be common in Algeria. And there are limits to the, the violence of the British. And so here is a list of the detention that came in many forms, uh, really just summing up what I've said. Uh, to add, yeah, they kept villagers in cages in their own village. Uh, there's also reporting to police stations, there's house arrest, all sorts of different styles of detention. They also banished some people, uh, some of them they deported to the Seychelles, like the Arab higher, um, higher command leadership, uh, but they also banished people actually from the country, including uh, Jewish communists. There's some quite interesting work on how the British obsession in the Jewish community was more with communists than with Jewish nationalists. And here's one of the results, starvation by late uh, 19, this is late 1936 for the American Colony Archive. Here's uh, a nurse handing out bread. And there's a real problem with uh, poverty, dislocation, social dislocation, homelessness, hunger. Uh, it doesn't extend to famine, but it's a very difficult time. And of course, this has an effect on the Palestinian community when it comes to uh, the next war with Israel in 1948. And it's about control. Here's a nice image of one of the gates going in. Uh, uh, gates going in on one of the gates going into the old city of Jerusalem. Here you can see some schoolgirls coming in and here you can see the little needle eye, the door that's going to let people in and out. And later on, they put barbed wire at the top. So control. And here you have control with dogs. Interestingly, the man at the back is from South Africa. They brought in South African handlers for tracker dogs. Uh, the, the dogs were used uh, largely for tracking rebels, it wasn't for sniffing out explosives. Here you have a Palestine policeman, and on the right you have two British soldiers in shorts, Lee Enfield rifles, and the old style hats. And this is just outside the um, Jerusalem city walls. It's interesting, they had searches, so they would search Palestinians, but they didn't search the women, but they had some women searches uh, that they would use from the Armenian community. And they also use I think, some Russian Christians or Russian Jews, uh, women for the searching. Here's surveillance. Here's an army camp, searchlights ranging out over the um, hills near Jerusalem. And during the day, <clears throat> during the night, it was almost like a permanent prison, really. Curfews at night. The Palestinians had a long strike in 1936, so they were supposedly not working through the daylight hours. And the American consul in Jerusalem, he remembers how quiet it was. He says he was walking through the old city um, on a usually busy Thursday. And he said, it's just absolutely silent, just some soldiers at checkpoints, but nobody was out. And here's a nice image on the curtain wall of Jerusalem, British officers called the Watchers. I don't know why the American colony um, archive archivist wrote that, or the person who put the photo in. Here you have five British officers looking out, searchlight behind them. So it's the idea of surveillance, the idea of control, and of course censorship as well. The British not only controlled, there weren't that many telephones, they controlled the telephones, uh, they also refused visas to recalcitrant journalists, and they redacted and closed newspapers. So if you read the Arabic press of the time, you'll get to the March issue of a paper, and then you'll think, oh, that they've missed out. The next issue is October. 
and you're looking through and go, go and see the archivist where's the where are the issues from april to september nothing the uh, the uh, newspaper's been closed down they also uh, made newspapers uh, publish information that was favorable to the british government and some parts of the newspapers would be redacted the newspapers weren't allowed to publish anything about hajamin about any of the operations of the british army in the countryside and one of the hebrew language newspapers got into trouble because it redacted so much it was almost as though they were making fun of the authorities so the authorities uh, pushed back against them the censorship was a very important part and control of information and just sort of moving a little bit towards the end about resistance, I, resistance is not the main part in the book, but it forms two chapters. And in fact, I, I start the chapter with Al-Qassam. Um, and it, the, the resistance is the variable against a colonial power that executes pacification in a fairly consistent way. And the argument in the book is that the resistant is, resistance is incoherent. Now, there, there are two very good resistance leaders. Uh, one is Al-Qassam, and the other one up on the right, topless, is Fawzi Al-Qaouchi. Uh, Qassam is killed in 1935. Qassam fights, uh, sorry, um, Fawzi Al-Qaouchi fights uh, for about a seven-week period in September, very late August to October 1936. After that, during the revolt, he never reappears in Palestine. So the leadership devolves to Hajj Amin al-Husseini on the bottom left, who in 1937, uh, he, well, he flees, or in some accounts, the British police let him leave and go to, he goes to Beirut, to Lebanon. And the, the leadership is, is, is very poor, although the resistance of the Palestinians is very strong. There's a question here about the need for disciplined leadership. And I take you back to the comment in the first slide, which is I can't think from the American Revolution till the Second World War of any power, uh, any insurrection that was organized enough and powerful enough to defeat the might of the British Empire, the largest empire the world had ever seen. Um, Fawzi al Karuchi is interesting. The British engineer his escape in October 1936 when there's a ceasefire, precisely because they know. Uh, sorry, um, Fawzi al Karuchi, they uh, uh, engineer his escape. So they want to get him out of the country because he is an effective leader. And Al Qassam is interesting because I've heard anecdotally, but I didn't put it in the book, that when he, um, he has his final battle in November 1935 against the British police with the head of British CID flying in a light plane overhead, they're determined to destroy this uh, key resistor to British rule. Um, he, when they capture him, one of the stories is he, they just shoot him. So it's not, he's not shot in battle. I mean, they execute him. They want to get rid of him because they know that he is such um, a threat uh, in terms of insurrection within Palestine. And I do mention in the book, I'm no expert on Vietnam, but I was struck by the power of Mao Zedong's um, thinking from the 1930s, picked up by the Viet Minh and then the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. And I have an image here of Ho Chi Minh because comparing what happens in Palestine to what happens in Vietnam is comparing chalk and cheese, two very different insurrections. And the discipline of the communist resistance, both against the French and then against the Americans, stands in stark contrast to the inchoate forms of resistance put forward by the Palestinians. 
I reading the accounts of what happens to the, the ordinary Palestinians at the sharp end of British pacification, it's hard to wonder what the leadership in the both the national committees and the Arab higher committee were thinking um, in terms of how they launched the insurrection. Because although there are elements of, of disciplined insurgency with the Palestinians, it's certainly not enough to overcome the British. And of course, divide et impera, divide and rule, which the British are so skilled at doing all across the empire, all through time, uh, most recently up into Northern Ireland and the war in the 1970s and 80s, where the British um, security forces infiltrate so successfully the dissident insurgent Republican groups. And here you have the collaborators very famously, this is the British general in charge giving a talk at a meeting at Yatta, the southern part of the West Bank, 19 October, I think 1938. And on the right, you can see uh, here, with his fez on, uh, you can see Nashashibi. So the British also pick up on um, fissures within the Palestinian community and exploit them very effectively. I don't think that this is a deciding factor in any way to the defeat of the Arab revolt, but it certainly is a contributory factor to the colonial intelligence sort of collaboration architecture that helps discombobulate the Palestinian resistance. It makes it very hard to know who's friend, who's foe. The British set up what, are, what they later call pseudo gangs, uh, troops which are dressed up as the other side, so nobody really knows who is fighting whom. And the Yatta meeting is not terribly successful. The Palestinians uh, prefer Hajj Amin's resistance to the Nashashibi's collaboration. But it's nevertheless part of a, a wider movement that includes also auxiliaries from the Jewish side, from the Yishuv. And I was struck by just how many auxiliary units there were within the Jewish community. Uh, some of these are synonymous, so they're the same names, they're different names for the same unit. But nevertheless, I found all of these different names that the British use to describe the Jewish auxiliary forces that fight alongside them. And most famously, there's Ord Wingate Special Night Squads that fight in Galilee, there's a picture of them below, in 1938. That's a pretty brutal force, but I would add that one of the reasons its operations end is partly because colonial officials complain about the excessive violence, but also the British Army doesn't like the Special Night Squads. It doesn't like the irregular quality to them, the British Army is conservative as an institution, um, and also doesn't like the excessive violence. Uh, one of the... Um, issues is decimation. So the Roman legions of classical proportions, the special night squads will execute every 10th man, obviously decimation, but sometimes they'd execute one in seven or one in six, pour encourager les autres in a village, uh, usually to uh, stop any trouble, to encourage information or to get guns. But the special night squads are actually fairly small. The Jewish supernumerary and auxiliary police forces and settlement police forces, some of which are funded by the Jewish agency, they get support from the British, they get military training. So there's a combination here of the British military uh, keen to repress the Arab revolt and the Jewish uh, community very keen to both get military training and also get support from the British military and protect their community from the violence of the Arab revolt. 
But many of the future Israeli leaders, uh, like Moshe Dayan, uh, go through training with, in his case, the Special Night Squads. But for other um, Jewish leaders, it's with other parts of these auxiliary forces, some of which are full time, many of which are part time. And uh, that's it. I've been speaking for 45 minutes, so you've got 15 minutes for questions. So uh, over to you, Deanna. Hello. Um, that was absolutely fascinating. Um, I have been having a little nosy as the people that have been um, um, have been watching, and we have such an interesting group of people. So we've got Lord Cope, John Cope, who is, um, I believe he's the president or the patron, I'm sorry, John, I've, I've got that wrong, of the British Palestine Police Association. He is here today. Yes. Um, also, Anne-Marie Jasser, who, hello, Anne-Marie, I love your work. She's a filmmaker. She's made one of my favorite films of all time, Salt of the Sea. Um, and we've got Samia Khoury as well, all the way from Jerusalem, whose, um, whose grandson had recently been arrested. Um, and we were following his, what was going on with that very closely. So just a lovely group of people with such high attendance, loads of questions. And so I'm going to get to them because... I already can tell you we will not be able to get through all of them. There's been so many. But like I said, do pop them in the chat box and I will be forwarding them to Matthew after the event. Um, I just wanted to tell you before we start with the questions, a little uh, comment from <clears throat> Heather Farmani. This is utterly fascinating. Thank you. It's a whole vast new historical thread for us all, which I just thought summarized what we've been hearing in the chat box and definitely what I feel. So um, start with a little compliment. Why not? I've got a question from Juliet Campbell. Were the British even handed in their use of controls with the Arabs versus the Jews? Uh, yes, in principle. No, uh, uh, yes, in theory, no, in practice. So uh, if you read the Jewish, um, if you read the emergency regulations for 1945, they're pretty much the same as the 1936 ones. So in uh, principle, the, the regulations apply to both communities in the same way. Uh, they don't treat the two communities in the same way, no. Uh, the reasons for that are complicated. Uh, the British Army, uh, this is more anecdotal, I don't have a, a, I can't quantify this, that's more qualitative. My reading of the British Army is they prefer the Palestinians to the, the Jews. Uh, they are, um, I've been now say sort of great racist or patronizing, but they, they, there are more positive comments about the Palestinians and there's a lot of anti-Semitism after 1945 against the, the Jews in Palestine and also back in Britain. So I don't know that it's the, the British view that's really the issue. I think the issue is the nature of the resistance. So when the British try to affect the same punishment on the Jewish community after 1945, the resistance is such that, it mod that the British moderate what they do. And also the, the British deal with what are largely European Jews, on, I think on a cultural level that is easier the British to understand, and they are often moderated in what they do. So uh, on a Jewish settlement search, they'll sometimes have a conversation with one of the senior Jewish people on the settlement who'll say, look, um, I know you found some grenades, I know you found a rifle, but let's talk this through in a way that wouldn't happen with uh, the search of a Palestinian village. So as I said at the beginning, they, they, they purport to be even-handed, but I'm not sure that they are, no. Thank you for that. Um, we've got a question from Salman Abu Sifa. 
Um, does the British action in Palestine in 1936-38 to 38 amount to war crimes or crimes against humanity? Which convention treaty law applies? It doesn't, um, it's the Geneva Convention, it's the four conventions, where is it, 48, 49, that are key here, and they come from the Second World War. So before the Second World War, there's no, no international treaty about this, because the Hague Conventions of whatever it is, 1901, 1907, cover things like prisoners of war. They, they don't cover in international law uh, what the... The, the Geneva Conventions that cover war crimes. So in international law, but I'm not a lawyer, and I'm sure you've got people who can much better, ver well versed in this, the, um, the international law that doesn't cover what the British do. So in that sense, I wouldn't say it was a war crime. It, it, you, there's a different way of looking at it in the sense of, does it go against British military law? A lot of what they do doesn't go against any law. There's, there's nothing in the manual of military law or nothing in the emergency regulations that says they can't do this. Now, at times, as at Howe Hill or at Albassa, where they massacre people, the, the British Army covers these things up because they know they're wrong. So those incidents would strike me as being, uh, I don't know if they're a war crime, they're, they're an atrocity of some sort, they're, they're, they're a crime, yes. Um, so I'll give you an example. When the British kill um, Palestinian villagers at Howe Hill, the, the company commander of the Black Watch he asks for the orders to he, they imprison the men in cages in the sun and then 15 to 20 of them die. Uh, and he asks from his battalion commander for a written order because he knows it's wrong. The battalion commander says, if you don't want to do it, resign your commission. So he does what he's told to do. Then afterwards, when there's a Ferrari raised about the dead Palestinians, the, uh, they look to skewer him for what happened, rather like William Calley at Milai. So they look to skewer him so they can absolve the higher command. And eventually, Wavell intervenes, no, it's not Wavell, so Connor intervenes to say as the senior general, look, I'll take the blame, because it's not his fault. So they didn't know it was wrong. And I don't know if they know it's wrong in international law, but they know what they're doing is wrong. Some of it, some of it they don't think is wrong. Oh, it's fascinating. Um, speaking of lawyers, we've got our John McHugo, one of our trustees, who's in the audience, and um, he reminds us to have a little look at the paper given by Michael Link, um, who was the former special uh, rapporteur for the UN, OPT, um, at our conference last May. I will post a link to that in the chat box. And um, he will be joining us for a webinar as well, Michael Link, with John McHugo uh, soon. Um, we are still finalizing the details in the flyer, et cetera, et cetera. So I haven't uh, put it yet up on our future events, but you know that if you are on our mailing list, you will get an email as soon as we have that confirmed. So do check that out. But I've got two questions about Wingate that I'm gonna ask together because they are pretty similar. So Ronnie Barkin says, could you say a few more words about the role of Ord Wingate who is regarded as a Zionist hero by Zionists? Um, where institutions and streets have been named after him, while conservative historians refer to him as, in quotes, a madman, perhaps a sadist, and a war criminal. And John McHugo also says, um, in your excellent book, which I have read and recommend, um, and I've posted a link to where you can buy it in the chat box, you say that the British found the method used by Ord Wingate a bit too strong. How did he go beyond the kind of measures that you have outlined in your very interesting talk? Um, let's take the first 
point, uh, Wingate wasn't Jewish, he was a Plymouth Brethren. Um, uh, he was an odd character. Uh, he ended up uh, dying in Burma, leading irregular forces there. He was very, very pro-Zionist. He, he spoke Arabic from his, his period in Sudan. He, he taught himself Hebrew. Uh, he, he was a, a strange character. When he taught the, trained the Jewish troops, he was very tough with them. And in fact, one of the British officers who was with him said to him, if you ever do that to my men, the British soldiers, there's going to be trouble. Because he was slapping around the Jewish soldiers. And the British soldiers thought this was quite funny because they thought, look, look at the way he's acting. They, they can't do that to us because they're not allowed to. So he was, a, he, he was an odd, eccentric character. And, and to answer your second question, I mean, too strong, yes, his, his measures raised, uh, caused a storm within the British colonial administration and within the army. I and mean, they didn't like what Wingate did because it was so excessive. But it's partly all Wingate's eccentricity brought him um, into a clash. I mean, it brought him... Uh, gave him trouble with the British Army. I mean, the British Army didn't like what he was doing. The British Army never liked irregular units. It doesn't even always like special forces units. It likes the regular infantry units. And so Ord Wingate was outside of the usual chains of command. But one of the things that gave Wingate power was the local brigade commander, Evan, in the north, gave Wingate a lot of leeway to do what he was doing. So Wingate's actions were partly a function of simply the brigade commander in Haifa allowing Wingate to do more than perhaps another brigade commander would have done. And it's worth remembering that once the troops surge in, in October 38, British can repress the Palestinians losing, using less extreme pacification methods than Lord Wingate used, just with regular line infantry units. So when they start the SNS operations in the summer of 38, it's a very difficult period for the British. They're short of troops. The troops are being held back because of a possible war with Germany. Therefore, Wingate's operations are a, a cheap fix. Thank you for that. Um, I've got a comment and question from Anne-Marie Jasser. Um, so she thanks me for the shout out. You're welcome. You are always very welcome. Uh, thank you, Matthew. Your work is amazing and so much appreciated. She says, I noticed when speaking about Palestinian resistance against the British, you have mentioned the chaos of the movement, the inability of the leaderships to organize efficiently, et cetera. Would you also say that the Palestinian resistance, however, was in fact successful um, at a certain point in the revolt, so much so that the reason for its failure was in fact the British had to take things a step up in order to crush it, i.e. bringing in thousands more troops, tanks, airplanes, et cetera basically that the resistance was actually succeeding and took the British by surprise, so they had to up their military game. Yeah, well, it's an interesting point. Um, uh, yes, uh, the answer to your question is yes. The problem is you're escalating between two bodies that are completely unequal. I mean, it's the Palestinian things escalate, unless the British are going to be distracted so much by a war in Europe that they can't deploy troops, um, you, you're risking that future forced deployment from the British. And you're right that the Palestinian resistance is so strong, the British have to deploy large numbers of troops, but they do have them. I might rejig that question slightly and say the Palestinian resistance is incredibly successful, but what's very unsuccessful is the diplomacy of both the Palestinian leadership, the higher command, but also the Saudis, the Iraqis, the Jordanians, because Palestinian resistance in 1936 brings the Peel Commission. 
Now, the Peel Commission's conclusion to divide Palestine is not acceptable. So Casamite gunmen uh, execute Andrews in uh, September, October 1937, the revolt starts again. Now, again, the Palestinians are successful because in late 38, with the Woodhead Commission and then the, White, uh, the St. James Conference and then the White Paper, the British give up on Jewish immigration. Now, that's changed by the Second World War, by the rejection of the White Paper by the senior leadership, which I, I can't really comment on, it's not my area of expertise, I'm a bit perplexed by it. But it struck me that the Palestinian leadership preferred sort of nothing to something that was not everything. I, I mean, if you look at the Irish in 1922, they accept something that's not everything. Uh, the, the Cypriots in the early 1960s, they accept something that's not everything. The Vietnamese in 1954 at Geneva, they accept something that's not everything. I, I don't know if they could have worked the white paper of May 39 into something else. It's a what if. But the resistance changes the British policy at two key moments. So your, 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 speak, your, 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 your comments very apt. Thank you for that. And thank you for all of the fantastic questions, everyone. Um, this is where I come to you with my cap in hand. Um, I am posting a couple of links um, because we are a charity and we very much rely on the, our support from our supporters and we one of our main objectives is education um, to help power advocacy work and that includes these these webinars which we are trying to do twice a month you may have noticed and um, if you can spare any um, of your um, income. <laughs> To support us we would very much appreciate that so i've posted a link to our donation page better yet if you can sign up to be a friend i.e giving us a regular donation a regular commitment that helps us with our admin our future planning and so forth and um it, you have a whole host of benefits such as discounted tickets to our upcoming conference which is on the website and um, free tickets to other events and so forth um I would like to finish with um, just one question, really, because we've had it come up in various forms in the chat box. But what is the responsibility and the accountability of the present British government in all of this? I'm not sure I'm really versed to, I'll really tell you what happened in the past. The, the legal cases surrounding Kenya, because I've got a colleague who was working on them. Um, the legal cases that he was working with as a historian uh, concerned people who were still alive, so they were asking for redress. And I don't know what the legal position is because the people who were the victims of this in the 1930s will all be dead now. Um, so, I, I, if you're talking about legal responsibility, A, I don't know, but B, my intuitive sense is that I, I don't know what legal case they would have uh, in terms of connecting it to now, but that's the question for lawyers. Um, if you're talking about more of a moral point, there's a whole reassessment of the British Empire now and the Empire and what went on. So uh, it's part of a much wider story about all, I mean, the repression, not just in Palestine, but in other places as well. I mean, if you, if you read the accounts from Kenya in the 50s, they are, they are sort of worse. I mean, the British did, yeah, some of the torture, for instance, is worse. We're cutting off people's ears, castrating people. Um, I mean, they, they didn't quite do that in Palestine, although they used sort of racks. These were water torture, the whipping, um, the accusations of hot oil, the use of drugs. This is all in Palestine. So there's kind of a, a continuity across the empire. So maybe 
I mean, now that Kenya and Malaya are being discussed, people are going just back and discussing Palestine, but uh, in, in Northern Ireland, there's been sort of a truth and reconciliation following the end of the trouble. So I can, and in South Africa as well. So I can see why there's a need to, uh, to deal with the legacy of these things that happened in the past, whether that's legal or something that's more cultural, I don't know, but I think these are very uh, uh, pertinent questions now and connect to a wider mood and, and a, a wider sense within the historical community about how we see our past national and imperial histories. Oh, thank you so much, Matthew. This was a topic that I wasn't super familiar with and I feel much better informed now. Thank you. And um, like I said, everyone, I will be sharing the chat box with Matthew. So if you've got any comments, please do check them in there before we end this webinar. Um, sorry, I didn't get through to everyone's questions. There were so many and they were all fantastic. Um, Matthew, I just want to thank you again for coming along and speaking for us and um, everyone for attending. You've been absolutely fantastic, everyone. Yeah, so, I just say something. If people do want to email, uh, you might want to email me because I, I might check the chat box, but I'm not very sort of IT savvy. So uh, if this is a really burning question you want to have an answer, you can always email. So I always respond to email. Sorry to interrupt. No problem. So please do feel free to um, drop me an email and I will forward it on to Matthew. I will just, we'll just email my email address in but it's Deanna at Balfour project.org just making sure I spelled my name right all right fantastic so I've put my email in there if you are um, not familiar with it or if you don't have access to it um, I will be sharing hopefully tomorrow a link on our general mailing list which will have all of the recordings from today so the audio um, and the video um, we do put the audio up wherever you might listen to your podcast. So if you listen to podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Cast, all the different platforms, you can find all of the Balfour Project past events on there, um, as well as a video and links to where you can find Matthew's book and so forth. So keep an eye out for that. Please do share today's talk with anyone who missed it, who you think might be interested in it. Same with all of our talks. And thank you so much for all of the lovely comments that we're getting. I will pass them on to Matthew so that he can have a little look and feel the appreciation. So again, I will thank you all and I hope you all have a lovely evening. Thank you, Deanna. Bye. Thank you. Bye.